0: Good morning. Morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Sam, and uh, me and my wife Anna we're co-leading the new church. that's being planted down at Barking Riverside, and uh, you want to keep your Bibles open at page four seven five, starting a new sermon series this morning. But before we start that, I wonder, um, I wonder if you're in the mood for something a little bit fun this morning. Okay, so. Can you indulge me? Right. What I want to see, this side of the room, have we got any actors on this side of the room? Right? Well, I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. All I want you to do is to pretend, now this this is a Cabarese water bottle with a smiley face on it, but pretend that this is the most terrifying thing you have ever seen. This scared, brilliant, okay? I'm gonna do three, two, one. You're ahead of the game, but that's what I want. I'm gonna do three, two, one, and I wanna see your most scared expression and exclamations. Is that all right? Three, two, one. Oh, come on, that was lame! Give me something good, okay? Give me something a little bit better, right? Three, two, one. That's what I'm after. That's good, that's good. Okay, this side of the room, if I've got any people who are willing to stand up with me. Because I've got something amazing for you. You ready for something amazing? You need to stand up. You need to come with me. Okay? Are there any people going to come with me? you going to do it? But you're going to miss out. you going to come? Right, come and look at this. Look at what i got down here. This is amazing. Is this door even open? It's not even open. Let's look, maybe I'll put it in here. Did I put it in here? Have about? Oh my God. Absolutely nothing there. Thank you. I embarrass you guys more. Here's the point of that ridiculous way to begin a sermon, (laughs) is this. In our Christian lives, some of us, if we're honest, whether we realise it or not, the way that we're living is shaped by fighting or fearing things that we have no reason to be afraid of. And pursuing and longing for things that we have no reason to long for. They're not even there. We're scared of things we've got no reason to be afraid of. We're pursuing things we've got no reason to pursue. And that shapes our whole life if we're honest. Let me ask you this question. Think of the week that's coming up. Where are you going to be tomorrow? What are you going to be doing? In the office? At home? I don't know, college, university? What's going to make you successful? At the end of your day tomorrow or the end of your week, when you're on your way to bed, what is going to make the difference between you feeling like that ah, was a great week? I nailed it and thinking, Oh my word, that went really badly. What are you after? What are you living for? What are the biggest challenges that you're facing right now? What are the things that if you could pray, if if you could see God face to face at the front? And say to him, God, I've got one thing I want you to change. One thing I want you to get rid of and remove and deal with. What's that thing? Those kind of questions are really important questions. Because they shape how we actually live. So you're here on Sunday, well done. Congratulations, it's good. We've had a great time of worship. I just I love being in worship. My favorite things. Partly because I'm loud, I'm expressive, and I'm emotional. And when worship's going on and everyone's singing and the band is loud, you can do that and you don't look weird. Well, that's what I tell myself anyway. Maybe I do look weird to you. You're here on Sunday, but what is going to shape your life through the coming week, the coming months, the coming years? What shapes us as a church? We're starting a new series this morning. Uh, called restoration we could use another word which is revival it's not called the god of restoration let me just fess up right now I'm not very good at powerpoint I just googled an image of restoration this is what came up so it advertises preachit.org never been to that website got no idea what it's like but um, there you go that's the best I could do in the time (laughs) I've only only got two more slides and then the, the title slide again I'm not going to spend very long on them. I don't like PowerPoint. You can love it if you like. But there you go. But we're starting this series on restoration. Uh, we could use the term revival, and we're going to be looking at uh, this period of history, which is the uh, post-exilic history of Israel. Now would you put your hands up if you have just this week been reading about the post-exilic history of Israel? Has anyone? whoa have you actually oh because she's preaching next week that's cheating that doesn't count okay how many of you how many of you have read the books of Ezra Nehemiah or Esther in the middle of your bible yeah we got some of those how many of you have heard teaching on it preaches on it before leave your hands in the air how many of you can remember the teaching that you heard Oh, oh, come on. This is a period of history that we don't often look at that much. Ezra and Nehemiah are actually uh, one book in the Hebrew Bible. We make it two, but they're actually one. And they cover a period of about a hundred years of history. You could put my next slide up. Here we go. I don't know if you can even see that. They cover a period of about a hundred years of history. And here's what happened, if you know the big story of the Bible, is that Um, Partway through, God forms the people Israel from Abraham. Abraham has a lot of kids. He gets to about 70 families. And then they're enslaved in Egypt. And in the midst of slavery, God multiplies them into a nation. That's probably about 2 million people. But they're enslaved. But he promised to set them free. Through Moses, he sets them free from Egypt, leads them across the wilderness. And then with Joshua as their leader, they go into the land he promised to give them. And they establish as a nation and God had made a covenant with them a covenant is a relationship based on promises the closest we've got is marriage in the middle of the desert when he brought them out of Egypt God said to them I'm going to make you my people our whole world is meant to be my people and my children I made them for a relationship with me but they've run off I'm going to choose you, mate, you my people. And in the middle of the world, I'm going to have people in this special relationship, effectively married to me. And when people look at you, they're going to see what it's like to live with God. And when you obey me, when you live in my will, when you love me with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, all of your soul, when you shape your lives around that love, then I'm going to pour out my blessing on you and everyone's going to see my blessing and my goodness and the nations will flock to you and come back to me. But if you disobey me, if you break this relationship, if you run off after different things, then the nations still need to see that I'm real, that I'm holy, that I'm just, and that I'm sovereign. And there will be consequences. There will be discipline that comes. And what happens is, after the nation has been set up we have a number of several centuries of history, and one and two kings, one and two chronicles in your Bibles, which tell you about different kings who led Israel. And some of them were amazing, like King David and King Solomon. And they're amazing because they loved God with everything, and they taught the nation to love him. But some of them were not so great. And they went after other gods, and they messed up and led everyone to do the same thing. And it happened again and again. And God sends prophet after prophet after prophet, they're also in your Bible, to say, come back to me, come on, guys. Come back, please. But they ignore him, ignore him, ignore him. until the prophet Jeremiah says this. He says, because you have persistently walked away from God, you're going to receive what you've chosen. And a nation is going to come, the kingdom of Babylon, and you're going to be taken into exile. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The walls destroyed. The temple right at the center destroyed. But... After 70 years, because God is so gracious, even when we forfeit the, the covenant, even when we break our promises, he goes over and above and will still keep his any way he can. After 70 years, I'm going to take you back. And so what happens is we've got, if you can see this, the fall of Jerusalem just before 585, and then we've got about 70 years. Jeremiah said, you're going to get returned. Isaiah was even more specific. He says, it's going to be, uh, the God says, it's going to be King Cyrus who he uses to take you back. And what happened was, after 70 years, the Babylonian Empire got taken over by the Medes and the Persians. And who was the king who, who rode in triumph into Babylon? It was King Cyrus. And the first thing he does is reverses the policy of the Babylonian Empire, which is take everyone's idols and gods and bring them to Babylon. And he says, no, everyone's going to worship their local gods in their local place. So he sends Jerusalem back. And if you read the start of Ezra, if you've got your Bibles open, haven't you? Wonderful people. And so Ezra chapter one, it says this, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. And the proclamation says, Yahweh, Israel's God has given me sovereignty over everything, so I'm sending his people back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Go if you want to go. If you don't want to go, give them your silver. Give them your gold. It's a reflection of when uh, Israel left Egypt. Give them their riches and support them. And then we have, this is under the bounciest man in the Bible was their leader, Zerubbabel. You get that? Zerubbabel, the bounciest man in the Bible, led them back. And he rebuilds the temple. About 50 years later, uh, the leader Ezra gets sent back and he teaches the people God's law. So he rebuilds the holiness of the community. And then around the same time as him, a guy called Nehemiah goes back and he rebuilds the wall. So you've got this amazing story of God restoring Jerusalem in three different ways, the temple. And then the holiness of the community. And then the walls. And I don't know about you, but when I've heard Nehemiah preached on, it's normally been because the church has started a building project or they've started a new initiative of some sort. And then you go, oh, we're doing something new. Let's get some leadership principles. Let's go look at what Nehemiah did. You know, the funny thing, in the Hebrew Bible, this is a case study in a revival that fails. Because it begins, with these, it begins with the prophet Jeremiah uh, and this reference to Jeremiah. Now, here's a little tip. When you're reading, especially the histories like Ezra and Nehemiah, when there's a prophet mentioned, it's like a hyperlink on a website. The point is you're meant to see Jeremiah. You're meant to click on it and then read all of the book of Jeremiah. Don't worry. It's only quite long, read all the book of Jeremiah, have all of that in your mind when you're reading the rest. And that happens all the way throughout. Haggai, Zechariah get mentioned. You're meant to click on them and read it. And if you read all of Jeremiah, you've got this promise, amazingly specific promise that after 70 years, I'm going to send you back. But you've got more Not just that they'll return, but that they'll rebuild Jerusalem. Not just that they'll rebuild Jerusalem, but God's going to do something new. Because now all the nations are going to come from around and join in worship of God. Not only that, but he promises to send the Messiah, who's going to establish a brand new kingdom that will spread over the whole world. A kingdom of righteousness and salvation and goodness. And right at the heart is this incredible promise, where Jeremiah says in chapter 31, I'm not just going to give you the law written down, on paper or on stone tablets, but I'm going to write my law on your hearts. And no one anymore will have to tell their brother, oh, this is what God says, because we'll know. Ezekiel talks about the same thing in chapter 36, and he says, I'm going to take your heart of stone out, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, and the Spirit of God is going to be in you, and you will know him for yourself. So when you start Ezra, you're going to be excited Oh my goodness, he's starting to fulfill what he promised in Jeremiah. This is going to be be better than before the exile. This is going to be incredible. But then as you read through, you have these three stories of the temple rebuilt, the holiness of the community getting rebuilt, the walls getting rebuilt, and there's moments in each of those stories that make you go, Oh, what? So just before the passage we heard today, they go back, Zerubbabel and his guys, and they go back and they establish the altar. They start to worship, They're remembering who they are. They build the foundation. And then the end of chapter 3 says this that at the ceremony of opening the foundation, now if you know your biblical history, you know, whenever the temple, when the tabernacle was finished, what happened? The Shekinah glory of God came down like a cloud and rested there. Such a holy moment! People fell prostrate on the floor. The God's presence was tangibly there. But when they lay the foundation of the when they, they lay the foundations and have their ceremony, nothing happens. And it says that some of them were rejoicing, but those that remembered the old temple were weeping, and you couldn't tell the difference between joy and weeping. It's an anti-climax and it happens in all three of those stories. And then you think in Nehemiah eight this is the next slide by the way, actually. I've been on there for a while, but I never told you. And the next and then and also I, I did the wrong numbers. I don't do PowerPoint. So the last one should be Nehemiah twelve B thirteen. But don't worry about that. But then you think that it's all gone well in Nehemiah because from 8 to about 12a, uh, in chapters of, start of twelve, chapter 12, there's this massive revival celebration and they're hearing the Lord and they're repenting and coming back to God. And then in 12 and especially 13, you've got these little stories that tell you how everything that was achieved was undone the temple they built but now it tells you that they've got lazy in their worship in the temple the community was made holy again but then you read that they're breaking the sabbath the walls were built but then you read they compromise the rules by having markets outside the walls and the gates open on the sabbath and so Nehemiah it's a great ending to a book it's never in the sermon series when you're doing a building project but Nehemiah goes crazy because he runs around the city beating people up and pulling out their hair and you know that the final words of the bible in, in Hebrew are essentially this. They're Nehemiah saying, God remember me. I tried. Do you know, the message of this whole book is meant to tell us and be a case study for us of the, the awesome power and faithfulness of God. Do you know our God is a covenant keeping, promise fulfilling God. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. You can run from him and hurt him and spit at him and insult him, and you can run headlong in the opposite direction, and he'll keep on pursuing you. Oh, he's just. You won't enjoy it when you're doing that. You'll reap the consequences. He's not to be fooled, he's not to be messed around with, but he's so good, he'll pull you back. He'll pursue you and draw you back to him in every way that he can. He is a covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling God. But here's the thing. His promises are so incredible. They're so amazing. They're so transformative that we cannot make them happen. The message of Ezra and Nehemiah. Esther is also a story from the middle of that period. The message of that hundred years of history is to tell us this. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Strange names, but amazing leaders actually. They did a really good job with what they had. And they failed. God has promised revival. Do you believe it? But we cannot make it happen. We can prepare for it. We can pursue him. We can hinder it. We can even squander it. But we cannot cause revival to happen. And in fact, as soon as we think we can make it happen, we are on very dangerous ground. Because we're just about to miss him. So we're looking right now at... Uh, zooming in into the, the issue of opposition. I've spoken for a bit too long already. I'm going to do this relatively quickly. But here's what happens. How do we prepare for revival? And how do we respond and understand opposition? So Rubber ball does the right thing. Because they return, and they return to a city surrounded by scary nations... With no walls, that has not been in a good way for 70 years, the first thing that they do is they remind themselves of who they are. That's why you've got a list of names at the start of Ezra, because they're tracing their genealogy back to the original people of Israel, saying, we remind ourselves. We're not here just as people who used to be in exile and have come back. We're not just here as people with this job or that job. We're here as the children of God, the covenant people of God. And so they remind themselves of who they are. And then they set up the altar and they begin to worship. And they establish again the rhythm of worship that God gave them. A rhythm of daily sacrifices, weekly sacrifices, monthly sacrifices. Let me ask you this question. If you want to see God move in your life, in your family, in your workplace, in your community, do you know who you are? When you go to work tomorrow, who are you? Are you an employee, a manager, a secretary, a street cleaner? I don't know what your job is. Are you there as an employee? Or are you there as a child of the living God who has promised that he will bring revival, that he wants to change the heart of every person to love him and know him and worship him? Who are you there as? Do you know? And do you have a rhythm of worship in your life? What's your life shaped around? Is it shaped around the things that are answered to the questions I said at the start? The things that will make your week successful or the things that are your biggest challenge that you'll ask God to take away? Is that what your life is shaped around? Or is your life shaped around daily habit of time with Him? A weekly time where you pursue Him even deeper. Monthly times where maybe you do something that you've never thought of before. Maybe you fast, stop eating something. Oh my goodness. I find that quite hard. You've got to do it. <laughs> do you pursue him? Is your life shaped around the pursuit of his presence, seeing his face? Because you know what? The secret to seeing revival come and God fulfill his promises isn't how strong you are, how clever you are, how energetic you are, how beautiful you are. It doesn't matter that all the people on the microphone are strong and beautiful, energetic and great. I don't think I am really. It's not about that at all. It's not how many degrees you've got, how long you've been a Christian. It's about, is there a fire inside of you that is passionate about the things of God? Do you love Jesus with everything? And do you know his voice? Do you know what he said to you? Do you know the promises that he's made for you? Do you know that he said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Do you know that he said that the purposes of God are to bring all people together on the one head, even Christ? Do you know we've got a ministry of reconciliation in a society where families are breaking down all the time, where it seems sometimes that more marriages break down than carry on, that we have a God of reconciliation, a God who brings people together. Do you know we've got a God of forgiveness, that there's literally no sin you can do that will make him love you less or even has to leave a stain on your life because he can forgive you so thoroughly and so incredibly that he takes that broken place and mends it to such an extent it becomes a foundation that you can help other people build their lives on. Do you know that? This is the God that we serve. And you're his child, his son, his daughter, beloved by him and then sent on mission by him. So let me ask you again, when you go to work tomorrow, who are you who are you there as what are you doing there because do you know what promotion doesn't matter it's like the locked door or the open door that had nothing in it what's the point it doesn't matter a bigger house who cares financial security is that really worth everything Here's the thing. None of those things are necessarily bad. But you pursue those to your detriment. But when you pursue him, he'll give you what you need if it's any of that stuff. And if not, he'll give you something you never imagined he can do. So that's the thing. Do you remember who you are? Have you established your life on these patterns of worship? And then here's the thing. As you do that, guess what happens next? Opposition comes. Opposition comes to them. The people come who had already been living there and say, we want to help you worship God. We want to help you build the temple. And Zerubbabel says no. And those people become enemies. And the funny thing, the reason that we skipped a little bit and all of that is you've actually got reference to about a hundred years worth of letters that were written and opposition that came. In other words, this opposition comes. What that opposition does is it accuses them, undermines their character, says, these people are rebellious, these people are here for themselves, these people are selfish. They dishonor the authority that's here. They're just doing this because they want to dominate everyone. They're so judgmental. The opposition accuses their character and their motives, and the opposition does not go away. 100 years of opposition, 100 years of challenge, and confrontation. And the people originally stopped for about ten or fifteen years they stopped building because they're scared. Until the start of chapter five tells us that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah came to them and said, Hey guys, God says to you, What are you doing? Why are you living in your house and my house isn't built? Why are you scared of these people? What is the worst thing that they can do to you? Complain to the emperor? The emperor is the one that I used in the first place to get you back here. I'm bigger than the emperor. Have courage. You're scared of the wrong things. And so finally they start building again. You know, the circumstances haven't changed, but they've heard the word of God. They've got courage in their hearts, and they do again what they were meant to be doing the whole time. And then God changes the circumstances. And in the midst of the opposition from the emperor, there's times when the emperor is actually write another decree and turn everyone to support them and all of that. Here's the thing. The way that you prepare for revival and the way that you walk through opposition is the same. You remember who you are And you build your life on pursuing him and hearing his voice. What happened was that these people came to discourage the guys who were building the temple. And they got discouraged and they began to withdrew from God. They began to turn off from his voice. And as they did that, they forgot who they were and they became scared of the people they didn't need to be scared of. And they began to fight the people they didn't need to fight. Because do you know, one of the ambiguities of this passage is this. We don't know whether these people opposed them because they were always bad on the inside and wanted to stop them or because actually this was God trying to fulfill another part of his promise that all the nations would come come and build the temple. Is that what God was doing here? And they only became opposition because Zerubbabel took his eyes off the Lord and said, no, this is for us, not for you. Protected himself, began to fight the wrong people. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us for sure, but it sure plants a question for us. Did they miss it? Here's the truth you need to know about opposition. People are never the enemy. There is no instruction in the New Testament to tell you how to fight people. But there is instruction after instruction after instruction to tell you how to fight the devil. Do you know the best thing that I learned at theological college after two years of being in lectures there was from one guy who came in and did one session. And I have no idea what he said in that session apart from one line. He said this, He was from CPAS and his name is John Dunnett. Some of you will know him because he worships here. He said this, we have a saying at CPAS, to remember always that your brother is your brother, your neighbor is your neighbor, and the enemy is the enemy. Some of us are scared of people and we're fighting people. We're resisting people, getting offended by people. And we're stopping loving. And instead, we're getting angry with them, letting bitterness in, letting rage in. When the enemy all the time is not them, people can hurt you. Don't get me wrong. It's a very real cost to shaping your life around God and pursuing what He's going to do, being fully His in a conspicuous way. There's a real cost. It's not just that you might not get promotion, you may get disciplined. There's a real cost. People can hurt you, but even when people hurt you, they are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. So the boy has people come to him and says, no, go away. 100 years of opposition. What does Jesus do? Jesus, the one who only does what he sees the Father doing, only says what he hears the Father saying. What does he do? He walks humbly constantly in love, even from the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. He walks with integrity and not compromise. Never lies when he's challenged. He stands on the truth. Are you the king of the Jews? You say that I am. He walks with integrity. He walks with strength. But he walks with humility, gentleness, and love all the way to the cross. And what happens three days after the cross The greatest revival of all time. The revival that's the source of every element and moment of revival we have ever seen since. The resurrection. So here's what I want to end with. If you followed me at all, I want to end with a bit of a hopefully a good challenge for us. Which is, what are you living for? What do you expect God to do through your life? Do you know who he is? You ever heard of Peggy and Christine Smith? Two sisters in their 80s, one blind, one almost crippled with arthritis on the Isle of Lewis. Heard of the Isle of Lewis? About what, 60, 70 years ago now. They felt that God they had a... Uh, A word laid on their heart from Isaiah where God promises, I'll pour out uh, water, I'll rain down water on the dry ground and pour out my spirit on the thirsty land. And they came to God, they looked at their community and saw that people had no thought of God and they were so moved by it that they committed to praying at least three times a night through the night, these two old ladies. And they prayed and prayed and prayed, God, this is what you've promised, come and do it. And they saw one of the greatest revivals that our nation has seen, one of the last revivals that happened. They had whole communities. They had a few hundred young people who were on a dance floor with no thinking about God and then they had the presence of God come in such power that they suddenly realized we need God and they rushed to the church. They were just turning off the lights from a prayer meeting when someone came back in and said turn them back on. The town has come. And they were crying out for God to move. This is our God. This is our God. We don't get it not by might not by power but my, my spirit. So my question is this. A God who wants to turn every heart back to himself through you and me. Do you remember who you are? And the second question is this. Some of us need to repent because we are fighting or we are fearing the wrong things. Like the grave clothes that Becky shared about. God wants to take them off. That person's not your enemy, even though they annoy you so much. That person's not against you even if they do overtake you for promotion or get in the way of what you're doing. Fix your eyes on what's real so that God can do something so much more than just a successful career or a beautiful home. Great if you get those things. Most of the church around the world no hope of getting that but they've got something I am so hungry to see for myself here the reality of the presence of God turning lives by the thousands back to him